Genesis chapter 31, verses 1 to 47. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out of the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In the breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Then Rachel and Leah replied, do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with the goods he had accumulated in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the river Euphrates, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You've deceived me and you carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so that I could send you away with joy and singing? to the music of tambourines and harps. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you've gone off because you long to return to your father's household, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you found anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent, 
and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime, he asked Laban. How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now that you've searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself, and you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you for 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have borne? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it, and Jacob called it Galid. Thank you very much, Shalape. Well, please do have your Bibles open at that passage. And um, I appreciate, as you're hearing it read, you're sort of thinking, probably there are lots of questions going through your mind. We've got family conflict, we've got an economic situation, some farming stuff going on, uh, speckled and spotted goats and sheep and... Uh, them running away and these household gods. So um, I feel that there's, there's a heck of a lot going on in this passage. And uh, when we went through the sermon series, I was actually um, given uh, the chapter before as well to look at. So we, we, we're going to sort of jump back into chapter 30 at points. So if you've got your Bibles open, that's really helpful so you can follow um, where we're going. And uh, as we look at this story, again, what we've been seeing over the weeks is how the Lord God in his grace and compassion, continues to work through people with all their problems in the messiness of everyday life. He is there. And I wonder if you just think for a moment, the thousands of decisions that are being made every week by you, um, they might be, even this past week, ones that feel quite insignificant, but they're just part of everyday life. They're part of the tapestry of what leads you to the more memorable, big momentous decisions that you hold on to, whether that's leaving home for uni, whether that's starting a new job, moving to a different church, uh, moving to a different area, starting a new relationship with a person, all the decisions that lead up to that. This week, we've seen some pretty major decisions being made in our government. And over the last couple of weeks, some quite cataclysmic decisions which have impacted us. 
Just think about the decisions you made to be here this morning, willingly choosing to invest a couple of hours or more if you're on the serving teams to meet with other people in some way to encounter God, those decisions that you've made. But you've also come with questions, with doubts, even with deep hurts. And that's all mixed up with the good stuff, with the stuff you're feeling positive and thankful about. I love the way Paul Tripp, who's a counsellor, a pastor, a writer, I quote him quite often because uh, I love what he says. I I, I love how he puts it in this uh, devotional from his book, New Morning Mercies. He says, perhaps the most important decisive questions for Christians between your conversion and final resurrection are, what in the world is God doing right here and right now? And how in the world should I respond to what God is doing right here, right now? And even if you're not on that place of faith or someone who says, well, I'm still undecided about whether there's a God, it's still one big great question, isn't it? What, what is going on right here and right now? And how am I to live in this moment? What are my expectations? And again, as we've seen in this series, going through uh, these chapters in Genesis on Jacob's life, we're being struck time and again that God is a God who takes the difficulties and joys of life, the blessings, the challenges, the frustrations, the successes, and their tools in his hands, tools of grace, to produce a character in us that wouldn't grow any other way. We're seeing that in the person of Jacob. We're going to see him being molded again with his family in this encounter. You see, life with God means it isn't chaos. Life with God means it isn't wasted. And that actually, even this week, with the decision you've been making, Jesus is committed to bringing you closer to him. He's completing a work he is doing in you. Not maybe giving you your definition of happiness and successful life, but bringing you actually into something better. The fulfillment of his love, his joy, his glory, which you share in. And this family conflict right here for us in chapters 30 and 31 of Genesis is evidence of a living God who lives with us in the mess. And uh, we're just going to look at two characters in it, Jacob and Laban. We'll look at um, Rachel's response as well. But really under this heading of deciding to respond to God's work, how do you decide what decisions are made as God is at work? So let's look firstly at Jacob's perseverance. And I'll ask Matthew just to flick the slide on. Thank you. So here in chapters 29 through to ver- um, from verse 31 of chapter 29 through to chapter 30, verse 24, that sort of segment was one that's filled with seven years of baby booming family growth. We looked at that two weeks ago. This sort of building a family is squeezed into these chapters in all its sinful mess of polygamy, of jealousy, of feuding, of insatiable motherly desire, of painful childlessness, of heartfelt prayer. It's all in there. And we see that the family God promised Jacob many years before, which seemed impossible, is now being formed. Here are 12 sons that are being born that would become the family lines of future grace to many people in many nations. And over time, this fruitful family, Jacob's heart is slowly changing. 
as he looks around in his daily work, looking after the sheep and goats, and he sees this tribe of unique toddlers, snotty-nosed and crying at points and running after him and wanting attention and probably pulling sheep's ears and goats and stuff like this, he's looking and seeing God's promise in flesh. God's promises coming to pass. So he can't help but lift his eyes up and look at the horizon southwards and go, hmm, is he going to take us home? Is that promise going to be fulfilled? You see, 14 years in Haran, as I said, in that, that northwest area of Turkey to the north of Jerusalem and 500 miles away from uh, what we know of uh, Jerusalem and Palestine, that area. He's there in Haran in, in Turkey and that homesickness lingers. Jacob thinks maybe now God will lead me back home. Chapter 30, verse 25, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so that I can go back to my homeland. It's a request to his father-in-law to say, look, bless me, give me the provisions, let me set up my family as its own tribe, as its own household. But Laban doesn't deny that Jacob's careful work, the successful growth of his flock, he, Laban can see that. He's, yes, the Lord is doing it. He's the one who's blessed us. But then what follows in chapter 30 and verses 31 to 43 is the familiar pattern of family conflict and scheming. And this is the backdrop to this chat about speckled and spotted goats and sheep. You see, Laban isn't prepared to pay just wages. Oh, no. If there's a business deal to be done, Laban writes the book on this. True to form, he says, you want more, you've got to earn it. So Jacob's perseverance and faith is seen in the business deal that he makes in chapter 30. Laban's flock would have lots more pure white and solidly colored goats. White sheep and solidly colored goats. They were commonplace. You'd have more of those in a flock. So with fewer black lambs or speckled goats. So in a culture where the shepherds would normally have picked up about 20% of the flock in wages, Jacob is saying, he'll take the animals that are fewer. I'll take the lesser ones, the ones that are rarer, the, the ones that are easy to see as well. They're really distinctive, so you can't blame me for stealing stuff. And that is the conversation that takes place earlier in verses 29 to 34. But can you see the change already in Jacob there, if you've been following this along over the weeks? Where's the grasping streetwise dealmaker? The one who's got a cunning plan. He's basically offered to take a smaller paid packet. In fact, if we jump forward six years, so we're jumping forward six years, chapter 31, verse 10, Jacob is looking back on the conversation with Laban and explaining to Rachel and Leah, he says, in the breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw the male goats mating with the flock and there were streaked and speckled or spotted. And the angel of, the, of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. Now, that resonates with something God said to Leah when she was praying about having a son. She declared in chapter 29, verse 32, that the Lord has seen her in her misery and, and, and has provided a son. The Lord seeing, the Lord seeing, seeing what's going on with the injustice in the workplace. He's seeing what's going on with the childlessness. And then God reiterates, he's the God of Bethel. That goes back to Jacob's journey out 
from his homeland in Canaan, where he met God, sets up this pillar, and has been given these promises. And God tells him, look, it's me, the one who met you in Bethel, with that amazing vision of heaven open and a ladder and the angels coming down and back and you're seeing heavenly realities here. Can you see what's happening? Jacob is acting by faith. He's taking God at his word. He's trusting God to provide for his work, for his family's security. And Laban, as greedy as ever, makes it harder for Jacob. He turns the screw because what we're told in chapter 30, just after that business deal, is that he, he takes, he tells his sons, right, same day, we've just signed the deal. Sons, get all the speckled and sp- spotted ones. Get them out of here. Quick, quick. You know, I've just made a deal that Jacob can have them. So shift them and get three days between you and him. So there's no way they're going to wander into his pasture lands. Wow. Can you see what Laban's done? He's effectively taken Jacob's means of producing a flock and he's taken the means of being able to grow a flock for himself. He's imprisoning him again, yet again. He's turning the screws in the workplace to make it more oppressive, more difficult for Jacob to be his own man, to enjoy his family to even at some point stymie the promises of God to say, hmm, God, are you really with him? Let's see. But notice Jacob doesn't have any malice or revenge. That's what we'd expect at this point, isn't it? Wait a sec, what can I do now? Well, no, instead we're told he tends the flock of Laban. He carries on doing his job. And Jacob's breeding program that's described in verses 37 to 42 of chapter 30, we didn't read it, but it's quite an unusual one. And if you go back and read it, you you do sit there going, what on earth is going on here? He's stripping sticks and putting them in water troughs, and what, what on earth is this all about? And loads of commentators spend a long time just saying that, what I've just said, in like pages worth, basically. But it seems that Jacob here is, is in his culture, ancient Near Eastern culture, and there's a belief of visual um, impressions that particularly in animal husbandry, if, if they're looking at something, maybe it will happen as they're, they're, they're mating, that this will affect the offspring, that this visual impression will, will mean that maybe the goats will come out differently and spotted and solid-colored sheep and stuff. But whatever, it it's probably just shows our own flawed and stumbling faith, isn't it? You know, we do the same things. It might not look like that, but we do have backup plans. We do have, oh, well, if that doesn't work, I'll do X, Y, and Z, or I'll just, you know, I'll pray about it, but I'll also figure out some other stuff. What if God doesn't come through with, for me? So we can see Jacob's faith is faltering. It's not perfect. He's a man of his time, and yet God is still blessing him. And it's very clear that Moses, who, who records this incident for us, does not say that Jacob's increase was due to his funny animal techniques or farming habits. No, the flock grows utterly dependent on the Lord's favor. Just as earlier, Rachel's son, Joseph, was born, not because she had done a deal to get mandrakes and have this sort of, you know, again, a local remedy to childlessness. Not at all, the mandrakes are totally forgotten about. It was God who gave her the child. It is the Lord of grace who gives her her son, who takes away her disgrace. It's the Lord of the flock 
who provides the flock for Jacob. You see, God graciously and abundantly provides, and over the next six years, he does that for Jacob. Verse 43, we see there in chapter 30, in this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys. His wealth is increasing. His business is growing. And Jacob's heart is changing. His decisions are being made under the Lord's direction. And he's clear, isn't he, where the credit goes? Look at chapter 31, verse 5, and again, verse 7. The God of my father, Abraham and Isaac, has been with me. God has not allowed him, that's Laban, to harm me. He knows, he sees, he confesses who's in charge here. You see, this persevering faith, this is the fruit of God's work in Jacob's life. And that work is a work that is covering at least 20 tumultuous years. Jacob's listening to God and doing what he says. He's had the fortitude to press on. He would rather work for Laban than go away unable to feed his family. And such perseverance is a true mark of discipleship. Can you see how practical that is in everyday life? One of the things I loved about being involved with Ministry to Business, um, the workplace ministry we had in the city centre, was seeing people actively depend on God in their work. At our prayer meetings that we had monthly, there would be prayer requests about business deals, recruiting, releasing staff, buying buildings, praying for colleagues, getting the Lord's wisdom over career decisions and direction. There was an active dependence on those things in the Lord. Again, I can remember a very honest conversation with a Premier League footballer who described in detail how the Lord clearly directed him to a club through the counsel and prayers of a family members around him and people he trusted, even though it was a decision that would cause him a level of public criticism. Now, that, that story won't get in the press. But fascinating, there was a dependence, an active dependence. And even though he was faltering in faith, there was a level at which there was a recognition that there's someone bigger in charge here, even in Premier League football. Another friend simply described how, having come to faith, they started praying about their recruitment deals and the clients they were serving and the difficulties and stresses they were going through. Just because they had got Jesus didn't mean that life was easy and work was getting even better. But they took that stuff in prayer. Lord, what decisions do I need to make here? What's the direction here? And over the next quarter, he saw prayers being answered, clients being placed in good jobs, uh, more personal peace in those stressful situations. Indeed, even noticing he was turning into a more generous person, not worried so much about the bonus, but thinking how can that bless others, giving more time to helping colleagues, even though that would be, uh, mean working late, it would come at cost to him. You see, God used Jacob's day job to show him he cares, he provides for his people. Christians, do you have your eyes wide open when you're going in on Monday morning? Are you thinking about the Lord who is actively there changing you in your work, in your sphere of responsibility, that place he has placed you, whether with family or in the school gate or in the office? or around the, the colleagues you bump into, even if you're working virtually, the, the people in your neighborhood. You see, 
Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, promises all who trust him that he is with us. He is the embodiment of the Lord's promise. God is with you. He will not allow harm to fall on us. Do we truly believe that? Harm that will ultimately destroy us, that will cut us off from him? That's a no-go. That's not going to happen if you're in him. And guess what? He's actively leading. He's in charge of our workplaces, our families, all those areas of responsibility. He knows them. He's over them. How does that affect the way you make decisions, how you lead? Do you bring this into uh, your life group? If you're members here of church and in part of a small group, do you bring that into your prayer times, into your conversations, into the way you encourage each other? Did you notice that Jacob shares all of this with his wives, Rachel and Leah? And we've already seen they've been quite an argumentative, quite conflict, you know, entrenched people. And here's two wives and a husband coming together and talking about this. It's amazing, really, that they can see what's going on. They're changing too. They can see God's at work. It's quite mind-blowing in verse 16 to read, they said, do whatever God has told you. What? Again, we go back just a few chapters and it looks like an absolute car crash and yet the Lord's in there. And here is this word, do whatever God tells you. And if Jacob, therefore, with Rachel and Leah are a picture of slow change but steady change, of faltering but maturing faith-filled followers who are responding to God's work, who are making decisions in light of what they can see and know, well, we've got Laban, on the other hand, as a stark contrast, a warning here. So let's look at Laban's blindness. Um, thank you, Matthew, if you could just flick that on as well. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 31, what's Jacob? He's heard some news. It's worrying news. It's the sort of thing in the office, if you heard colleagues saying, oh, well, I picked up that, you know, the director's talking about this, um, and, and, and you know it affects your department or whatever. It can send the ripples through, can't it? can be very disconcerting. Jacob has everything our father owned and gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. There's been a turn. The frost is setting in. The, the, there's an anger that's again present. Tensions and bitterness are brewing. Six years after the business deal, Laban seems to be less well off and wants to blame it on his successful son-in-law. But look how Rachel and Leah described their, their father's greed and selfishness. Did you see it again in verse 14 when they were having that family chat? What do they say? Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? No. Does he regard us as foreigners? Yep, pretty much. Not only has he sold us, but he's used up what he paid for us. You see, Laban's daughters are clearly against him. They've had enough of how he treats them. He's, he's hurt and used them. Laban should have given them a portion of the bride money, that wedding gift that uh, Jacob had worked for and given to the family. They should have got a portion, but they got nothing. Dad was not only cheating Jacob, but he's cheating the women. They feel exploited like foreign workers would. Their father has literally eaten up what he has paid for them. But thankfully, Laban's oppressive grip seems to be slipping now. It's going. But can you see, his spiritual blindness is evident to everyone except him. And that's the really key thing. His spiritual blindness 
can be seen by everyone else, but not him. He cannot accept or see that it's his greed, not Jacob, that's taken his wealth. His anger and greed motivates this, this war footing that he puts his family on. He, um, the words used there in verse 25 of chapter 31 to talk about pitching tents, that's actually like setting up a, a, a war, a military zone. Your tents, these are battle tents. The battle lines are being drawn. And even his plea to Jacob when, when they meet in verses 27 to 28, well, it sounds phony, didn't it, as it was read out? There was no plan for a leaving band or joyful farewells. He wasn't even bothered to, to, to give his daughters their share of the wedding gifts. So how, how was he going to send them off with all this trumpeting celebration? No. Laban's deluded. He's already been warned by God as well not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And yet Laban freely accuses Jacob in that dialogue that we had read to us in chapter 31. He accuses Jacob of carrying the daughters off like captives, even though they had decided to go with him. There was no imprisonment. There was no captive carrying. You see, this is a, a sorry tale. And it's an absolutely relevant one because it shows us how sin is just so toxic. It shows us how greed utterly blinds us it deludes we quickly see ourselves as the victim and not the offender if our wrongs are pointed out we instinctively want to defend and justify ourselves you see Jesus's rebuke centuries later to deal with the log in our own eye what a great picture it's so memorable before the speck in someone else's in Matthew 7 not only demonstrates how we cannot see our own faults and hypocrisy, but also how monstrously overblown and selfish it is. It's a great picture. It's meant to really, really sting. You can't get away from it. God will not let our sin go unchecked. He's seen, we've seen him do this with Jacob. He disciplines him. And now he confronts Laban. He's going right to the heart of the matter. And the thing that really bothers Laban, this is really interesting, and is, is of, oh, you, you left, I wanted to have the band and be able to kiss and say goodbye to everyone properly. But look where he goes. Why did you steal my gods? Have you noticed in heated discussions and arguments, in, in very honest personal conversations as well, the thing people really want to talk about, the thing that matters most, comes up, the thing that's on their heart, it comes up right at the end of a conversation. Have you noticed that? Just as you're about to sort of round things off or leave or, you know, that, that's when the real issue comes up. It's like everything before was the starter and here comes the main course, the heart of the matter. And Jacob, he has no idea what's going on here. He has no idea what Rachel's done. For six years, he's, he's been careful. He's just worked by the terms of the business deal. He hasn't stolen from Laban anything. And this dramatic tension, you should feel it. It's like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen now? You, you as the reader are brought into a secret. You know something. The tension's there again. And, and then Jacob publicly issues a death penalty to the thief. Oh my life, Jacob, that's your favorite wife. You, you just feel, ah, can't, or camel crash, you know, as this is all going off. What are these objects? What, what are they? These household gods, these, this, their function. 
um, again, scholars sort of think maybe they're just little images of gods or ancestors, and they were essentially Laban's mean of means of divin- uh, divination, of getting guidance, of having the eternal come and sort of work in his life somehow. This was how he'd make decisions. He'd have them set up. He'd, he'd, he'd speak to them. He'd receive signs in some way from them. He'd look to them for guidance and blessing. And these, the term household god um, could be a parody. The, the, the Hebrew word is very similar to Hebrew words used for worthless things or dung pellets. There's a bit of satire going on in, in the text as well. But whatever they were, they were small enough to, to hide in a saddle. And we see that Laban's search is useless. And in fact, again, there's a sort of throwback to what was going on with Isaac. You remember blind old Isaac and then the scheme to get make... Um, Jacob look hairy and feel hairy like his older brother to get the blessing. There's a sort of link back to that because the word search that's used of Laban searching through the tents, the actual word there is the same as touch in the Hebrew that's used of Isaac. So you've got Laban and Isaac sort of stumbling around, feeling around and they're blind. They can't find anything. They, They can't see what's in front of them. They're trying to get control of a situation and there's just spiritual darkness. There's a lack of discernment upon both of them. They're disobeying God and that leads to blindness. Isaac wanted to bless his favorite eldest son even though God said, no, it's not going to him. No, I'll still do it my way. Blind. Laban, you're not to talk to Jacob. You're not to harm him. You're, you're, I'm in charge here. No, no, I'll still figure out, ah, no. And I think Rachel here is showing something of real courage, real boldness. There's a change in her. She's taken these very things that tug at her father's heart, these trinkets of guidance and power and control and direction, decision-making, And she desecrates these family idols. Much like Moses calling out Pharaoh and challenging the idols of Egypt. These gods she puts in a bag or a box on a a camel uh, saddle and sits on them. These gods that are so powerful have to be carried by a camel and are hidden. These gods that are so powerful can't be found or call out to Laban to show where they are. Whereas the Lord God is the one who's with them everywhere, leading them. The Lord God is the one who reveals himself to Laban and makes it clear who he is. Can you see the battle that's going on here? Finally, Rachel shows her contempt, and it's quite a graphic word here. It's a contempt and rejection of these false gods sitting on them during her period. I know we don't sort of talk about this stuff on a Sunday, but it's here in Scripture. Why is that there? It's important because she's saying these things are worthless. As one commentator put it, in that time, obviously, women were viewed as ceremonially unclean, not more sinful or anything like that, just ceremonially unclean at this point in their um, cycle. And as one scholar points out, in that culture, there couldn't be a clearer sign of humiliation for these revered objects as treating them like sanitary products. It's visceral, isn't it? It's a declaration that these things are no longer in charge. 
there is a Lord who has my heart and mind. And she's prepared to put her life on the line. And it's fascinating that the Lord protects her. She's not executed. Just as he protected Moses, just as he protected Gideon smashing his dad's idols, just as he protected Isaiah when he was speaking out about idols and saying, ha ha, you chop one, you chop the wood down, you cook with it, and then you make a little statue out of it and pray to it and nail it down so it doesn't fall over. He preserves those who speak truth, even when it's painful. You see, Laban's selfishness is dragged out into the light. And Matthew, if you could just flick the slide on. This is something that needs to happen to us. That sin needs to be brought out into the light. You see, it's ugly. Verse 43, his declaration, the women are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. No, you're wrong, mate. It is not yours. It's a gift. It's been given to you by God himself. Stop fooling yourself. He desperately wants to control everything. He's holding everything so tight, he's lost it already. And you know what? Laban would be right at home here in 21st century Manchester. We are not so different to him. Chasing the gifts, but not knowing the giver. All he had like Jacob, was a gift given by the Lord, and yet he still refuses to repent, to turn to the giver. He's hardened in his sin. He's like that Charles Dickens superb portrayal um, in his character Scrooge. He's like that. He's like Oliver Stone capturing the raw anger and self-absorption of his character Tony Montana in Scarface. These cultural visualizations we have that show the same ugliness. Indeed, some of the scenes in the House of Commons this week have shown the arrogance and control of people who are desperate to assert their will over others, no matter what the cost. Little gods fighting when there's a God who is creator of all and wants to be known and makes himself known and says, come to me. I'm the one. I'm with you. I'm giving you this. You see, sin needs to be dragged out into the light. And that's what Jacob does. He, in verses 38 to 42 there, in chapter 31, he speaks. This is really powerful. Jacob speaks like an evangelist, speaking truth, calling out Laban's sin. And how does he do that? Ultimately, by declaring the goodness and presence of God, the God of his fathers, the fear. That is the awesome one, the one who is over everything. Laban needs to repent, for the Lord's rebuked him. God has seen it all. He's giving him an opportunity to make peace with Jacob and ultimately make peace with him. There's a life-changing decision to be made here. And then at the end of the chapter, we're told these stone memorials are made. There's a meal that's had. Peace does come. Praise the Lord that there's peace. There is a farewell. But we're left with a cliffhanger. Has Laban really encountered the Lord? Will he change? Today, we celebrate three baptisms. We've made, the girls have made promises already, and they're going to get soaking wet in a few moments' time. But they've made these declarations, thankful declarations of allegiance, of trust in the Lord Jesus, who is the greatest shepherd, the one who laid down his life on the cross, the one who forgives our sins, the sins of every person who turns to him, who trusts him as God and Savior. 
that there is no sin dark enough that can cut us off from him because his blood is powerful. He is the saviour who takes the plank, the log, out of our eye. He is the one who is willing to do that, dying in our place for the judgment we deserve so that we will be blessed. Not sheep and goats, but eternal life. Love, joy, hope that doesn't break. Life with him forevermore. Seeing his blessings now, the gifts he has given us, all that we have as gifts to be a blessing to others. These girls, Rebecca, Naomi, and Anne, they, they've made promises to follow Christ all the day of their life. They're promising to walk his way with persevering faith like Jacob. That can only be a gift from God. Saying they're forsaking all other things. All the loves, all the idols, all the stuff that would want us to say, no, God isn't enough, don't bother with him. Living each day for Jesus' glory. Because to live with Jesus Christ as your fear, as the Lord, the awesome one, who is beautiful, who is powerful, who is awesome, who is gentle and lowly, who is the sacrificed one and risen one, who alone takes away all your fears and replaces them with his love, well, there is no other treasure. There's nothing on earth that compares to that love. So can I just say, quite simply, Wherever you are, turn to him today. Turn to him. Lean on him. Stick the idols in the camel's saddlebag and kick it into touch once and for all. It goes in the tip. Have him instead. Turn to the Lord. Don't walk away like Laban. Can I suggest you use the song we sing next as we have our final song and then prepare to go downstairs for the baptism? Use this song as a prayer. Just let the words be sung to you and then sing them in your heart. Pray. Reread the baptism promises. Make them yours. And as we close, I'll, turn, I'll close in prayer, and this prayer will be on the slide as well. So if Matthew can put it up, you can follow it along with me if you wish. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, my love is but frost and cold, ice and snow. Let your love warm me. Let your love lighten my burden. Be my heaven. Let the mighty tide of your everlasting love cover the rocks of my sin and pride. Make me fruitful by living in your love and my character becoming more beautiful in your sight. Lord Jesus, come to me. Holy Spirit, rest in me. Loving Father, keep me forever. Amen.